Hello and welcome to the weekly message podcast from Crozet United Methodist Church in Crozet, Virginia. We invite you to join us in person any Sunday for our contemporary service at 9.30 a.m. or for a more traditional service at 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org for further information. We hope you enjoy this week's message from Crozet UMC. Last week, a new worship series on the hurtful things Christians say, the things that we don't mean to be hurtful by saying, the things that we intend to be gifts to others or blessings, things that we hope will provide some insight and wisdom that we've gained throughout the years. Perhaps it will convey God's love or God's presence, God's willingness to bless us. But oftentimes we fail to remember that when we speak these things, they're very contextually relevant. But sometimes we're speaking them to people who come from a different place in their faith, or they come from a different background. Or sometimes we just really need to reflect on what we've been saying as Christians for generations and see if they still make sense or convey what we want them to say. So sometimes Christians have a habit of saying, the Lord will provide. It's a biblical quote. Abraham says it himself and even names a place after the encounter that he has with God there. The Lord will provide. And so when we say the Lord will provide, what we're trying to say is that God cares. God wants us to be okay. God is striving for us to have what we need so that ultimately we can continue to grow in our walk with God, our love for God, and our love for others so that we can be the disciples that Jesus Christ calls us to be, died that we might be, and rose again that we might share that love with others. But sometimes when we say the Lord will provide, what people hear is, Well, God's supposed to help us, but I don't feel very helped right now. I feel overwhelmed. I feel lost. I may feel rejected. You're telling me that God will provide, and yet myself or my family, my household, we're in dire financial straits. We're in a place that's very scary, and instead of resonating with that, that fear and the the anxiety that I have, you seem to be dismissing it with the Lord will provide as if it's God's problem, but you are here with me now. And oftentimes people are looking to us as people who bear the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to offer them some sign that God is with them. If we are using the phrase the Lord will provide to put all of the responsibility and expectation on God, then we are neglecting to hear the rest of the scriptures. The scriptures that tell us that we have a vital role to play in providing for others in the name of our Lord and Savior, in the name of God that God chooses to have people be part of that. And that as Christians especially, we are expected to be engaged in divine providence. We are expected to be a part of this. You'll notice that when the word came to Abraham, and Abraham has been on an incredible journey with God up until chapter 22 in the book of Genesis, called out of seeming obscurity, God says to Abraham, who is Abram at the time, I want you to go to a place that you've never been and where none of your family or your people reside, and I want you to go to this place, and I'm telling you right now that I'm going to make this place your home, and I'm going to bless you and the whole world through you. And Abram says, okay, I'm in. And immediately starts to do what God says. But 
doesn't just walk off with nothing. He has to prepare for this. He takes his wife, Sarai, and they begin an incredible journey together, experiencing God's grace, experiencing some of the sickness of the world that needs to be healed, that needs to be reconciled through God's holy work, and ultimately comes to this place, the land of Canaan. And there, there's a new message, a new covenant, that I will have for you a descendant. And from that descendant, many descendants will come, and the whole world will be blessed through your family because of this. And Abram, who becomes Abraham, gets a little impatient because when God says, I will give you a child, we're thinking like soon, before I'm too old, before this becomes a, an arduous journey. Well, no, Abraham wouldn't have his son by his wife, Sarah, until Sarah was 90, which is not usually a goal for any of us. I remember one time my mother was just having one of those times where she just needed to complain. You know, sometimes you just have to let your loved ones complain. There's nothing you can say or do. But in the end, after she had gone on and on and on, I decided to offer her a little insight. I said, well, it could be worse. She goes, I don't know how it could be worse. I said, well, you could be 90 and pregnant like Sarah. And she goes, it could be worse. I said, so there we go. We're going to just give thanks to God that we're not 90 and pregnant. That's a good thing. Because it was an incredible thing for Sarah to become pregnant at 90 and to give birth to Isaac. And this was what they had always hoped, that when Sarai and Abram, who were transformed in name by God to Sarah and Abraham, when they got married, they had hoped that they would have a family. That was what the culture expected. They expected that they would be able to do what our bodies were meant to do, to bring forth a child. And it didn't happen. And Abraham got a little impatient. And then there's that whole Hagar-Ishmael story that I encourage you to read sometime. But what ends up happening is that in due time, not by any machination of Abraham's or Sarah's or Hagar's, a new child is born. And Isaac comes into the world and Abraham loves him. The text tells us so. Abraham loves him. And God recognizes this. Take your son Isaac, whom you love. And now I want you to do something. We've been on this journey. I have done incredible things for you. You have been richly blessed. In fact, you are rich. And so now I would like for you to take your son and of that practice you have of doing burnt offerings, I want you to do that with your son, your only son whom you love. And Abraham, who cannot deny that God is real, cannot deny his relationship with God, much less his covenant, knows that God is asking something of which Abraham must respond. And so he does. But he doesn't just walk out into the mountain and go, okay, make it so, God. Instead, he plans and he prepares and he does things to make this successful. He actually goes through quite a bit of machination to make this happen. It said that he left with his donkey early in the morning too. He got an early start with his donkey, two of the young men that were with him in his house. He took his son Isaac, he took wood for the burnt offering, and then he set out for that place. We also know, because later in the story, that he will bring with him fire and the knife. And as they start to get close enough to the mountain to which he was told to go, he says to the two young men in his household, his servants, to stay with the donkey, that he and Isaac would go off alone to worship God. And so they prepare once again. He takes the wood that has been cut for the offering, and he lets much younger Isaac carry this wood, and then he has the fire and the knife. And as they're walking, Isaac says, I'm a little confused. We've got everything here for a burnt offering. I mean, I know how we worship. Even at this age, he knows how they worship. He says, but where's the lamb? Normally when we do this, we have a lamb. And Abraham's response is, God will provide. I think he's still wrestling with the fact that, will God provide Isaac? Or maybe God will provide another opportunity, a different way. 
And so as they get there, he continues to do exactly what he was asked to do. He binds Isaac up and he lays him upon the wood for the burnt offering. And then the text says that he reached for the knife. A lot of times our depictions show him hovering menacingly over Isaac with the knife like ready to plunge. That's not what the text says. The text said that once everything was done, he reached to grab the knife. And that's when the angel of the Lord cries out and says, don't do it. You have gone far enough. Go no further. You don't need to do anything else. It is obvious that you will continue to do what God asks and that you will do all in your power to ensure that God's will is done. You have planned, you have prepared, and you have made the journey and you are committed and God is committed to you. And then miraculously, he looks over and sees a ram whose horns have caught it in the thicket and he frees it and that is the animal that they sacrifice. Now, the one voice that I would really like to hear from in the scripture that remains agonizingly silent is Isaac. What was he thinking the moment Abraham bound him up? This doesn't look very good. I'm not sure that this is what we're supposed to be doing. And ultimately, we don't have his perspective. But I'm pretty sure that Isaac in those moments felt a lot like some of the people that hear those words the Lord will provide. This is not what I had in mind. This doesn't feel like God providing. This doesn't feel like a God of grace and love pouring out blessings upon me so that I can survive times of trial and tribulations in my life. Instead, this feels like someone I know and love, my father, having lost his mind and getting ready to hurt me. And so God calls out to transform this situation, to reveal that God will provide. I'm sure that if a ram was caught by its horns in a thicket, they would have heard it. I'm sure that it would have been noticed, but just when it was needed, there it was. God provided in that moment so that Abraham could do what Abraham needed to do to worship God through the means of a burnt sacrifice. And we are no different. In fact, the first reading shows us that even Jesus has expectations of planning and preparation. And he even gives them a pep talk when he decides to send his disciples out. And you'll notice he was planning to go to all the same places he sends them out to. But he sent them there first, just like he sends us out into the world first. And he says to them, here's the plan. I'm going to send you out in pairs. You're not alone. You'll go out in pairs. And I want you to preach the good news. And I want you to heal the sick. But I don't want you to pack up everything you own and go. You have to go with a little bit of faithfulness. I mean, you need to have appropriate clothes and sandals. But don't pack a big bag and bring extra stuff and extra sandals. You need to have a little faith. You be prepared, but you don't go overboard. And I want you to follow this methodology. When you enter into a town, you will extend your peace verbally, which is why we still pass the peace in worship. You will extend your peace. And if the peace comes back to you, then that's the person that God will provide hospitality through for you, that you will be able to go to their house and stay. And you don't go to the house and start demanding filet mignon and eggs for breakfast. Instead, you receive what they give to you, what God is providing through them and their means, that's what you receive. And you'll notice you can get a little crazy there. Jesus says, don't go from house to house. Don't. Don't visit everybody in the town and make yourself a menace. Stay with whomever is prepared to offer hospitality to you. And then if it doesn't work out, then you will leave. But ultimately, you will continue to be a blessing where you are. And God will provide for you through the people who host you, who open their homes, who share their food, who decide to have their gift to God be their ministry to you so that you may be in ministry. For Jesus and God recognized that we are people who need to be fed. We need to have a place that is safe to sleep. We need to be able to do the things to attend to these vessels in order to attend to our spirits and our spirituality. 
And so these were the commands that he gave to them. He didn't expect them to just walk out and be successful and that God was just going to provide an entire town where everybody was seated in pews ready to hear the sermon and be transformed. That's not what happened. Instead, God recognized that part of our preparation and our planning is us getting ready to be transformed even as we are seeking to be vessels of transformation. That we are part of the process. Now, I know I'm 39, but I think I've lived on this planet long enough to know that we need help. We're not perfect people. We're flawed vessels. Some of us are very much uh, bent to sinning more than others. And some of us, if we have the, the opportunity to go astray, we will run in the direction of, of opposite of God. And so and I often think to myself, why would you use people? We're such a bad choice. Why would you use people? We will do everything you don't want us to do. And part of it is one of those questions that I, that I think to myself, I have a whole list of questions I want to ask God when we get to the kingdom to come, and it's on there. Why are you using us? Why would you use us? And there's all kinds of theological answers that people have put forth on why God chooses to use people. And some of them feel sufficient, and some of them feel woefully inadequate. But what I have discovered in my ministry is that God uses us because it expands the blessing. It allows us to be part of the holy work and the transformation. There are plenty of places in Scripture where God does incredible, miraculous, powerful things and has encounters that would absolutely boggle our minds today. Burning bushes, manna on the ground when you wake up in the morning to eat for the next day. I mean, there are plenty of things when you look at the way God was interacting with people that you think, that would be so convincing. Surely everyone would believe if they could see God providing in that way. Surely if their encounters were like that, the whole world would understand and worship Jesus Christ. But it's not so. Despite the fact that generations of people got to experience God going forth in pillars of cloud by day and fire by night, got to experience the presence of God in the storms upon the mountain at Mount Sinai where they made their covenant, got to experience manna as they wandered in the wilderness, they didn't have a lasting transformation. It wasn't enough, which sounds so crazy to us. How much more enriched would we be, we think, if we were able to see the risen Christ? If we, like Thomas, had been able to put our hands in his wounds to touch his body and see that he had truly risen from the dead? How much more powerful and profound would our faith be if we had been there not just to witness the feeding of the thousands, but to taste the bread and the fish and to know that Jesus had done it? Or to taste the wine that he made at the wedding of Cana from water? To be able to see it and touch it and know that it is true. And yet people did. And more people have become Christians in the days since then with God working through human vessels. More people have been transformed. And perhaps in God's infinite wisdom, God recognizes that there is something very powerful about the conduit of human relationship. That when one person is engaged in a relationship with another, that something can happen there that is lasting. It is more than just a divine encounter. It is a relationship and an experience of a lifetime. And that those are the relationships that grow in us, that we mourn when they end because of death. Those are the relationships where so much happens and we have the opportunity to not only encounter God, but to be vessels of God for one another. Those are beautiful moments. And that's what Jesus was trying to encourage his disciples to encounter and experience. 
But so often we will think, you know, I'm just so busy. I'm so financially strapped right now. You know, he's hoping to get a new car. And I don't know that I want to spend my money on this right now, even though I'm sure it's a great thing, God. But you'll just have to provide through somebody else. We have all kinds of excuses. You know, I, wanted, I want to grow in my love for you, God, but I don't really want to have to read the Bible to do it. You know, God, I wish that you would help me to know the assurance of faith and to feel confident that you love me and that you will save me by your grace and that I don't have to fear what happens when I die. But I really don't want to go to worship every Sunday. We say these things all the time to ourselves. It's about putting a priority to what we want. And God is saying, I want you to make a priority on being part of my providence, my willingness to provide for another person. I want you to understand that you are part of the divine work that I can do it without you, but I choose not to. I choose to let you be a part of this, knowing that it never looks the same or as well when we do it as when God does it. I've had this experience recently with my son. Uh, he likes things very clean, which is good because I'm very type A OCD, very. And so I am trying more and more, as he is now 10 years old, to raise him to do some of the things in the household so that I don't have to do them all the time. And some of the things you would think, this is very easy. I will turn this over to you and you will be able to do this. Like putting dishes in a dishwasher. You don't have to have a PhD in geometry to put dishes in a dishwasher. And yet every time I open the dishwasher, I'm like, there's four things in here and no room. How does this happen? And so I was talking to him the other day and I said, you know, if you would be a little bit more thoughtful about how you load the dishwasher, more things will fit in the dishwasher. And then I won't have to run the dishwasher so much. And then we will save money because I don't have to spend it on soap and water. And it'll be a beautiful thing and it will free me from stress and make me happy. And then I bless everybody when I'm happy. And one day he said to me, you know, you do it so quickly and so easy. Why don't you just do it yourself? And that's why he's not with us today. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> and I looked at him and I said, you know what? You're right. I can do this quicker and better than you every second of every day. I'm really good at it. In fact, spatial analysis is one of the things that I do very well. I inherited it from my father. It's one of our family gifts. I said, no, I'm really good at this. I can look at an entire sink full of dishes and know exactly how they need to go in to not only be effectively clean, but to make sure that I can get them all in and maybe even have some leftover room. I said, I'm very good at this. I said, but I only got good at this because I did it. The more that I had to fill a dishwasher and the more that I had to be responsible for what happened after I ran the dishes, the more I began to hone my skills and get really good at it. Said, and I am almost 30 years older than you and I've been doing this for a while. I said, but at some point my parents had to look at me and say, you got to put the dishes in the dishwasher. And I'm sure they used to grind their teeth and clench their fists and watch as I chipped plates and do all kinds of things that we abhor, but in the end, I've gotten really good at it. In fact, now when my parents come down, I'm like, don't you know how to pack a dishwasher? Get out of the way, I'll do it myself, as I honor you as my parents by doing the dishes myself. But ultimately, this is what God is saying to us, that if we don't choose to be part of God's providing for other people, then we will never get any better. It's incredibly genius. I mean, it is great divine wisdom for God to have instituted a plan that involves us to plan and prepare and be part of God's work in this world. 
Because otherwise, God could just appear on a burning bush and only Moses would be changed. But when God decided to pair Moses and his brother Aaron up together and to do things through them to let the words come from Aaron and the powerful expressions of God's might come through Moses, the entire world was changed. Even the Egyptians had to recognize that God is real and has power. And all of those Hebrews, all of those people who had been imprisoned in bondage and slavery in Egypt, they got to recognize God really is with us and for us. Look at what God is doing for us. But God didn't show up in a pillar of cloud that day and turn the Nile to blood. God chose to do it through human beings. And there are glimpses of the internal things that Moses is thinking. For instance, partially, partially through his ministry, he ends up saying to God, you know, I've done all these things, we've been to all these places, and I've experienced so much, but I have never seen your face. And I want to see you. I just want to see you. That's what I'm asking for. I want to see your face. And God says, you can't look at my face and live. But I will give you an encounter. I will let you catch a glimpse of my, of my greatness, my glory. I will let you see a little something because we have been on this journey. And that's what it is to be a disciple. Christians believe in Jesus Christ. Disciples follow him. And when you start following Jesus Christ, you discover things that you would never have understood if you had just read somebody's testimony or you just read it in the Bible. You get to encounter things that will absolutely boggle your mind. They will rip open your heart. They will rend your understanding of the world and they will make you discover that God is doing things all the time. Some of us are just lucky to stop and recognize it. And some of us are even more blessed to recognize that God will let us be part of it. I can remember all of the times when I would do chapel for preschool at my old church and in my, in my church. And when I'm doing something, there's always that one child that says, I want to help. I want to do it too. And those are the kids that want to come up and they want to be a part. They want to lay their hands on what you're doing. They want to talk about what's going on. They want to be intimately involved with what is going on. And that's who God is asking us to be. Children of God who say, I want to get up close on this. I want to lay my hands on it. I want to understand what's going on. I want to be a part of what you're doing. I don't want to just sit by and passively watch. I want to be a part of this. And we recognize that. We had people give over $19,000 for medical debt relief on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day. We didn't have 19,000 people in worship by any means. We had less than 750. And out of 750 people, we got $19,000, $1.9 million in medical debt relief because people recognized that this was their opportunity to get up close and to be a part and to play their role in divine providence. Because when people are crying out saying, I hear that you will provide. I hear that you love me. I hear that you're with me. People say these things, but I don't feel it. Well, they're about to encounter God. They are about to discover in radically transformative ways that God is with them and that God will provide them the freedom and the grace that they have been looking for. But God did it through people like you and me. And God's got some funny taste. But the glory is that we are a part of this. 
And when we look back on our lives, you know, people look back as they get to the end. I've been with so many people as they're dying. And they look back and they think about, what have I done with my life? What are the things that really matter? Where is the importance? What is the stamp, the legacy that my life will leave? And a number of us who were worshiping in a little town called Crozet on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day are going to be able to say that we were part of a movement to set people free from $1.9 million of medical debt. I wish that would fit on my gravestone. What an incredible achievement to be a part of. When people in the world are saying the golden days of Christianity are over, that is a dying religion. Other religions are on the rise and Christianity is folding. It is because more and more Christians won't become disciples. It's because more and more of us say, someone else will do it. If I don't come and be a part of it, someone else will do it. God will raise up someone else. It's fine. But that's not the message of the scriptures. Over and over in the scriptures, when someone says no, God says, oh, yes. Moses said no five times. Guess who showed up at the Nile that day? Many times people say no. Jonah said, oh, no, 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 no. Not only do I not like what you want me to do, but I hate the people you want me to do it for. No. Mm-hmm. Belly of the whale. You can say no. You can say no. But if it is truly God's will that you be a part of providence, then it's going to be a lot better if you say yes now. I can testify to that. I've wandered in the wilderness of New Jersey too long to know. If God, this is something that a pastor once said to me. I once asked one of my pastors, I said, why are you a pastor? And he just looked at me. This is at the doors you're going out because this is where you have all your epic theological conversations, right? At the doors you're going out. And he looked at me and he said, I'm going to tell you something. He said, if God wants you, God's going to get you. That's a weird answer. Oh, is he right? If God wants you, God's going to get you. But God doesn't want you to punish you. God doesn't want you to, to make your life miserable. This isn't an exercise in bringing you low so that we can build you. This isn't military boot camp. God wants you because there is something about you that is really going to speak to somebody in their time of need. God wants you because you are able to do things that we need in the body of Christ that is the church. God wants you because one day, when everyone gathers together, you are going to be the peace that would be missing. There would be emptiness and a void without you. That's why God wants you. And some of us think to ourselves, me? God wants me? Why would God want me? There's much better people. There are people that are better at speaking. There are people that are better at administration. There are much people much better at singing than me. Why would God want me? Because God knows who you are and what you can be. God loves you just as you are, and yet God is willing to empower you and love you and grant you grace so that you can become even more. And that's what it means to be in ministry. So that when somebody says, it says the Lord will provide, we are here. In your moment of need, we will respond. When you are hungry, we will find food and we will feed you. When you are lost, we will help you find your way. When you feel completely abandoned by the family that you have through birth and through legal marriage, and you feel that you are ousted from them, you will find new family here in the body of Christ. Because 
we have heard that God will provide and we know that we are part of that providence. That we are the means that God has chosen in God's infinite wisdom and in much of our infinite ignorance to use to be part of a blessing for other people. And ultimately, when we think about these things, it becomes a part of us saying, you know, we could, we could have a few people do it all. But in the long term, it will look better if everyone has a role, if everyone is involved, if everyone chooses to be invested. And that's what it is. We have to choose to be invested. Abraham had put all of his legacy, all of his future in Isaac. And when God said, I want Isaac, Abraham said, I'm in. I will give him to you. All of his riches, all of his land, all of his success meant nothing next to the one that he loved. But he withheld nothing from God. And his disciples, all of us have to look at it. What is it that we withhold? What is it that we naturally, because we are human beings, that we keep a little bit for ourselves because there's something in every human being that worries that there won't be enough or that I'll be overextended or I'll be exhausted. We hold something back. And God is saying, if you put it all out on the table, if you commit all that you are, I will show you my glory. Like Moses, I will show you my glory. And your life will never be the same. And you will never have to worry whether it has been worth it. You will never have to worry about whether this incredible gift to the world that we know of as the Church of Christianity will die and will have lost all of the good that it could do and all the good that it has done and negate all the good that it is doing now because you are in. When we take our membership vows in the church, we pledge our prayers, our guests, our service, our witness. Our prayers, our presence, our gifts, our service, and our witness. We pledge five things. We pledge that we will give of our prayer life and that we will become part of the prayer life of the body of Christ. We pledge our presence that we will not only be here for worship, but we will be active in the missions and the ministries of the church. We pledge to give our support through our unique gifts and graces that we have, and especially our gifts. We are a financial culture. We live in a financial world, and we pledge all of that. We pledge to be part of that. I would love to tell you that churches are built on hopes and dreams, and I'm sure that's in the mortar and in the flooring, but it was also built with commitment from people, their hard-earned money, their time, and their faith in something bigger than themselves. We didn't show up this morning to a building that wasn't prepared. We came here because people believed and they invested generations ago and we are reaping the benefits. And if we in turn don't invest of ourselves, our time and our talents and our gifts, then there will be nothing for the generations to come. They will inherit dilapidated buildings. They will inherit outdated modes of ministry and missions that no longer meet the current needs of the world. But instead, we have an opportunity to lay the foundation all of the epic Christians that people name, people like C.S. Lewis and Mother Teresa, people like Desmond Tutu, all of them began like you and me. And in our congregation, in our church, we have no idea what they will grow to be. There were people that looked at me when I was growing up at Florida United Methodist Church and saw a really hyperactive, bizarre little child. Not a lot has changed. But they also saw potential. 
And I remember one day someone said to me, hey, do you like to play with fire? Oh, yeah. Good. We're going to let you play with fire. Here? In church? Yeah. We're going to let you play. See these candles? We're going to let you come and light the candles. And then afterwards, you have to put them out. You want me to light things on fire and then put the fire out before it catches other things on fire. I'm good at that. Let's do that. And so they said, and we have a place right up here up front. When you do this, we're going to have you sit up front. All right, okay. So at the age of 12, I entered into worship ministry as an acolyte. And I lit things on fire and put them out. And someone had to trust me, as, as bouncy and crazy as I was, to come up here and not light everything on fire, including myself. And then after a while, they let me do that. And then one day, an adult who had promised to read scripture didn't show up. I know it never happens, right? Adults never promise to do something and they never show up. One day the pastor looked down and said, hey, you're already here. Do you want to read the Bible? I was like, me? Read the, read the Bible to whom? These people? No. I think you can. Let's give it a shot. I think you can. So as a teenager, I started reading the Bible. And then guess what? I'm not that bad at it. So then it became, you know what? They didn't show up. It's okay. Sarah's here because she's always here at 11 o'clock because her parents are those weird people. And they're always here. And so I started to read scripture more and more. And then one day after reading scripture a lot, the associate pastor said to me, hey, how would you like to preach? Oh, no. No. I don't want to preach. And my mother's looking at me. And I did. And it was not one of my best sermons. It was not. But what happened was because I was willing to do what people were asking me to do, what people had made space for me to do, they were willing to surrender their pulpit and their high standards for the ministry of the word into my hands. And because of that, I didn't blow the world away with a perfect sermon. But what happened was that I discovered, hey, maybe this is my place. Maybe it's not down here in the pew. Maybe it's not just up here lighting the candles and putting them out. Maybe it's not just stepping in there just long enough to read the scripture. Maybe this is my place. But I wouldn't have found that if I said, you know what, someone else will read the scripture. Someone else will preach, because I didn't want to preach. I didn't want to do what they had asked me to do, what they had invited me to do, what someone had to step back and say, hey, I think that you can do this. In our lives, there are people who are offering us the opportunity to step in and step up. And then there are times in our lives where we have to say, you know what? I need to step back and step out. And that is a constant rotation of the life of a Christian disciple. God provides through our willingness to step in and step up. And then there are times for us to make sure that God is providing through other people. But we can't distinguish between the two unless we are engaged with God and with the church. We can't understand where we're supposed to be if we spend all of our time focusing on, I got to provide for me. No one else is going to provide for me. I know God will provide, but whatever that means... And if we don't have some faith and trust that together we can do this, then the next C.S. Lewis will never rise. The next Mother Teresa that will inspire not just Christians, but non-Christians to love and to care for other human beings will never emerge. We will deny the world something that the world so desperately needs because our calendar is really full and we're overcommitted financially. And well, you know what? It's really nice out on Sunday and I'd rather be somewhere else. But this is our moment and this is our time. Countless generations have invested in this. We fail to realize that when Abraham made the commitment 
that day to go to Mount Moriah and offer up Isaac, he was laying a foundation that would continue and we are standing and sitting on it today. We have a place to rest because his faithfulness, which was reckoned to him as righteousness, continued for every generation thereafter. And he showed Isaac what it meant to be faithful. He showed him that when God says, we answer, here I am. Here I am. Here I am, Lord. Send me. May it be so. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen. Thank you again for joining us for this week's podcast. We hope you found the message meaningful, and we invite you to join us in person as we gather for worship at Crozet United Methodist Church every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Please visit us online at www.crozetunitedmethodist.org to learn about ways you can connect with God and your neighbors through the ministries of Crozet UMC. Have a great week.